Influencing popular culture, politics, and everything in between. The local station takes you ringside as we discuss the crazy world that is professional wrestling. This is Going Ringside with the local station. Hello there, and thank you for joining us today on Going Ringside. I'm your host, Scott Johnson. So glad you could be with us today. Uh, I have a lot to talk about today, but first I want to mention last week's episode. If you haven't seen it yet, go back and check it out. It is all about the murder allegations and the murder charges filed against Jimmy Superfly Snuka. A lot of interest in that episode. You want to go back and check it out right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and also, just give us a follow at Going Ringside on Instagram or TikTok. As I said in past episodes, we put exclusive content there every day. Stuff you'll see here on the podcast, stuff you won't see here on the podcast. So I want you to go give it a check out at some point uh, when you can and give us a follow at, at Going Ringside. Um, but today, we've got a guest that I think really centers on what I need to talk about today. It's a broad subject, but he's got a lot of stuff. Today, we are going to talk about the WWF in the 1990s. And I know that's a lot. There's so much that happened in that decade. It's arguably the most important decade in the history of pro wrestling. I say arguably because you could really argue, is it 1980s or 1990s? In the 1980s, of course, Hulk Hogan and the WWF grow to national and international prominence. The territory system is essentially abolished as Vince McMahon puts the vast majority of them out of business. And WWF becomes a, a, a mainstream entertainment juggernaut. So the 1980s are important. But also the 1990s are arguably just as important um, because... It's just so much happened. And today our guest, a little later, is going to be a guy um, who you may or may not have heard of. If you're a longtime WWF fan like me, you may have heard of this guy. He was in uh, WWF at the time, like 94 to 97. Duke the Dumpster Drossy. And if you haven't heard of them, heard of him, just bear with me. He's got so much knowledge on that era from behind the scenes on the road with Bret Hart, working with Shawn Michaels, The Undertaker, Vince, Triple H, being with Steve Austin as Steve is learning that he's becoming a mainstream celebrity as he's getting famous. So there's just a lot there that he has to offer. So much good content that I wanted to dedicate this whole episode to the 90s WWF because so much happened there. And Duke the Dumpster Drossy, his real name, Mike Drossy, will be having him come on in a little bit. Um, just has so much knowledge of the stuff with the biggest stars of what was going on in their lives and their careers as he was wrestling them and traveling from town to town with them for much of the 90s. So before we get to that, I want to kind of do an overview of the 1990s in WWF because so much was changing back then. So it really started in... WrestleMania 6, which is April of 1990, when something important happened to the company. It was the first time Hulk Hogan legitimately lost in a WWF match. So much in the 1980s, pretty much all of WWF in the 1980s that is of note, was based on the rise of Hulk Hogan. 
and Hulk Hogan winning the championship, beating Iron Sheik in 1984, headlining every WrestleMania, being the face of the company. Everything Vince McMahon had was built around Hulk Hogan. Cartoons, merchandising, commercials, toys, everything. But in 1990, that started to shift. There were a few th reasons. One, Vince McMahon knew he wouldn't have Hulk Hogan forever. He needed to start to build a new star. And two, Hulk Hogan, the man, Terry Bollea, was starting to want to do something else with his life. And he wanted to start getting into acting and getting into Hollywood. And he was really the first guy to try that. Others had tried it, but not the same way he had. Jesse Ventura did it. He was in some Schwarzenegger movies and I think a Stallone movie or two, but he was a side character. He was in action movies, but he was not a lead. Roddy Piper did it. He was the lead, but his movies were kind of B movies. I think uh, something comes to Frogtown. I can't remember the title of the movie, but it was never an A-list mainstream big budget movie. Hulk Hogan, I think that was kind of the goal. It didn't really end up like that, but the goal was to make Hulk Hogan a movie star. He had obviously been a star in wrestling. He was a mainstream celebrity. Everyone knew who Hulk Hogan was through the 1980s. And he had his first real acting debut in, I think it was 89, with um, No Holds Barred, which was essentially a WWF production. Um, it was a parody. It, it was kind of a, a, a fictitious version of the WWF. And uh, Hulk Hogan played a character and he fought Zeus in it. And that was kind of his introduction to movies. And then WWF and Hulk Hogan tried to put himself out there as a lead actor. And they did a lot of movies with Hulk Hogan as the center. It essentially was, look, let's go watch Hulk Hogan and be in a movie. He never really came across as a generic movie star. He was Hulk Hogan and Hulk Hogan's in a movie. And they never did great. They did okay at the time. And I remember kids were excited to see Suburban Commando, Santa with Muscles, and a couple others. He never had the success of a Dwayne Johnson or a John Cena or a Dave Bautista. He just didn't. But at the time, it was still a big venture for the Hulkster. And eventually, he went on to make a, a weekly TV series on TNT called Thunder in Paradise. I don't want to go too much on that, but the, there were some changes in the Hulkster, so Vince McMahon needed a new star. And the guy who was becoming the star at the end of the 1980s, going into the 1990s, was getting arguably as many cheers and was just as popular as the Hulkster, was the Ultimate Warrior. So they put the title on the Ultimate Warrior and have him pin Hulk Hogan clean in the middle of the ring for the first time ever, in the first time they ever tried a babyface versus babyface, good guy versus good guy at a WrestleMania main event. It was kind of a risk for the business, but they did it. And the problem was, there were a few problems. One, Ultimate Warrior behind the scenes, and there's been a lot of documentation on this, there have been documentaries that WWE has put out on this, that Ultimate Warrior had a lot of problems backstage. He was a very difficult talent to work with, very difficult asking for money, and just eventually he imploded, people didn't want to work with him. And months after he won the title, he was on again, off again with the company, arguing over contracts, and he became a difficult person. So it was kind of hard to build your company around him. He didn't deal with the celebrity life in the life of being the fixture of the company the way Hulk Hogan did. Hulk Hogan was very good at it. Did everything he needed to do to become a megastar in wrestling in the 1980s. Ultimate Warrior didn't do that that much. And I also thought Ultimate Warrior was kind of harder to market um, compared to Hulk Hogan. 
Because Hulk Hogan, you could put out there on stuff that was not wrestling-based. You could put him on Arsenio Hall, Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, Regis and Kathy Lee. And he could go in and do a straight-up interview and be an interesting guest and someone that you could put out to all these events. Ultimate Warrior was crazy. His character was crazy. I mean, he's just talking, uh, and you look at old any Ultimate Warrior um, interviews, and you're just like, this guy's nuts. And that was kind of a little, I, I've always, you know, 11-year-old boys thought it was great. When I was a bo young kid, I thought it was awesome. But to anyone over the age of 18, you're kind of like, this guy's loony. Um, so I think that was a little bit of a problem. But anyway, Ultimate Warrior didn't last very long as the main guy. Um, and they eventually put the title on Sergeant Slaughter, who came in and did probably maybe the most controversial thing ever in the history of wrestling. And I think maybe I should do an uh, episode on it at some point. Was when they turned his character into an Iraqi sympathizer and put the title on him right when the first Gulf War is happening. And he started um, aligning himself in kayfabe with Saddam Hussein. He had the Iron Sheik uh, and... Colonel Adnan were his, uh, were his assistants, and they had this stable that sided with the Iraqis during a war, a real war. So that was very uh, controversial. Uh, my earpiece is bothering me. I'm just going to take it out for this show. Um, but so that was happening. And at this point, Warrior's kind of becoming a problem. Hulk Hogan is back in the fold. And another problem for Ultimate Warrior was Hulk Hogan was still there. You have this guy who's arguably more famous, just as popular, still there. It was hard for Ultimate Warrior to be the guy. So eventually, after Hulk Hogan wins the title at WrestleMania 7 uh, from Sergeant Slaughter, you start to get a change in the guys you have on your roster. They bring in Sid Vicious and call him Sid Justice. Maybe you hope he could be the new guy. They brought in Ric Flair, the nature boy. And I think the dream at the time was him to feud with the Hulkster. And you would have the dream match from the 80s, Hulk Hogan versus Ric Flair. It happened, but it never really materialized the way that WWF and fans wanted it to. Flair ended up more feuding on camera on television with uh, Randy Savage. And one other guy came in around this time at the Survivor Series, I think it was 91, and I don't know that they had as high of hopes for him. They could have never known how good he would have been. Would have been The Undertaker showed up as Kane The Undertaker. His original name was actually, ironically, Kane The Undertaker when he first arrived. And so you had these new guys and, and new feuds for the Hulkster and Hogan's doing more and more movies. Uh, dropped the title another time to uh, uh, Flair got it at some point. The Undertaker was involved. There was a lot going on. And at this time, something equally as important is happening behind the scenes in the real world. Vince McMahon starts to get investigated by the federal government in an anabolic steroid scandal. I may do an episode on that. Um, sometime down the road because it's important. And Vince almost loses his company, almost loses his freedom. He's accused by the federal government of distributing anabolic steroids to his uh, stars, his performers. Huge scandal. Hulk Hogan publicly on the Arsenio Hall show says that he did um, steroids. This is a big scandal and eventually he testified in the trial in 94. And that was big 
blow to the business because Hulk Hogan had been portrayed as a say your prayer, do your vitamins, this, this real life superhero for children in America. And he had to go on national television and say he did steroids. This got some mainstream press and was a problem for WWF. Um, and Vince McMahon behind the scenes is fighting to keep his company and keep his freedom, uh, keep himself out of jail or some sort of legal trouble. Um, and at the same time, he has to run a company. So because this is going on and there's so many allegations of steroid use and your, and your main guys up until this point had been Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior, two guys who look like they're jacked on steroids. Whether they were or not, that's what they looked like. So he has to start going a different route and get a new champion, a new face of his company who maybe doesn't come across with that sort of appearance. So they bring in Bret the Hitman Hart and he wins the world championship. And Bret Hart, when you look at Bret Hart, big guy, strong guy, incredible athlete, but when you look at him, you don't think that's a guy doing steroids. He didn't have that build. He looked more like just a legitimate athletic guy, and that's what he was. He was the excellence of execution. Bret Hart's uh, rise to being the face of the company was not without problems, because Hulk Hogan was still around for a little while, lingering, coming back through the summer of 93. And um, eventually, by summer of 93, Hulk Hogan left the company for good, at least until the 2000s when he would come back. Um, and then it was Brett's company. And by mid-93, going into 94, you had guys like Bret Hart. The Undertaker was solidified. Yokozuna. And they brought in Lex Luger. And they thought Lex Luger might be the new Hulk Hogan. But he just didn't quite work out. They really tried, they gave him everything, but it wasn't happening for Lex. So Brett stuck around and he was still the face of the company and they were still building everything around Bret Hart. Along the way, another guy who was a bad guy is increasingly coming, becoming popular, winning titles, getting fans behind him, and that was Shawn Michaels. And Shawn Michaels became famous alongside his running buddies, his Click, as they called it. That's important because Duke the Dumpster Grossi is going to talk a lot about the click coming up. That consisted mainly of Razor Ramon, Scott Hall, and Kevin Nash and Diesel, and eventually Triple H when he came into the company. And by the mid-1990s, you kind of had a few different uh, power bases in the WWF. You had The Undertaker, who was solid. You had Bret Hart and his brother Owen was in there, Neidhart and... Um, Davy Boy Smith were family members. They were his brother-in-laws. They came around. And then you had the click, Shawn Michaels. When he was at his peak, he had a lot of drug and alcohol issues in the mid-'90s, and that was kind of a problem for him. But uh, you had him, you had Undertaker, or I'm sorry, you had Razor Ramon, you had Kevin Nash to a point one, two, three kid. It was Shawn Waltman, um, who was X-Pac, um, and Triple H. And they were kind of the center of the 1990s. That's when Duke the Dumpster Drossy, the guy we're going to have come on shortly and talk all about this behind the scenes, that's when he was there. He was in the middle of all this. But eventually by uh, spring of 96, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash leave the company and famously go to WCW, who has Hulk Hogan at this point, legitimate competition for WWF, and they start the NWO, and eventually start winning the ratings wars. The Monday Night Wars between Nitro and Raw are really underway, and they famously beat Vince McMahon and the WWF for 83 weeks um, in a row in the ratings. WWF is hurting. 
They still have Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart, but they're not winning the ratings war. People are switching channels to watch Hulk Hogan, Scott Hall, and Kevin Nash in the NWO. Vince McMahon's losing his shirt. And eventually, uh, they have the Montreal screw job, the most famous backstage real-life incident to ever happen in wrestling, when at a Survivor Series in the mid-90s, uh, Vince McMahon goes down to the ring and tells the referee, call the match, give the belt to Shawn Michaels, and they ran away, and Bret Hart went back and in real life punched Vince McMahon in the face. In a very famous scandal, that's another episode we can probably talk about down the road. So this is at a time when Vince McMahon is losing his shirt and trying to save his company, and Bret Hart eventually leaves for WCW. So how does Vince do it? He was considering giving Triple H a big push, but Triple H was kind of involved in what was called the curtain call. Um, when Scott Hall and Kevin Nash left the WWF at a live event, even though they were feuding in kayfabe on camera, they did what was called the curtain call at an event where they all came out with Shawn Michaels, Triple H, Hall, and Nash, and they all hugged each other in the middle of the ring. They broke the, the, the aura that they were having a feud. They got in big trouble. But the problem was Vince McMahon couldn't punish Hall and Nash. They just quit. He couldn't punish Shawn Michaels. He was the top guy in the company. So Triple H got punished, and his push to the top was delayed. So instead, at King of the Ring 1996, they put the push behind a new guy named Stone Cold Steve Austin. And his rise to the top was meteoric, and he became more famous than all of them. I don't want to say much more than that, because if you want to go back and watch Going Ringside Episode 4, The Rise of Stone Cold Steve Austin, you can hear all about that. But eventually, they were on into the Attitude Era, and everyone was behind Austin, and they put WCW out of business, along with some other circumstances. But WWF became the thing to watch with Mick Foley, Triple H, The Big Show, and eventually The Rock by the end of the 1990s. And by the end of 1999, The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin were the two hottest things in the wrestling world. They were one and one A. They were the two most popular guys. The only guy who could make the argument that he was as popular was Hulk Hogan back in the 1980s. And that put WWE into the stratosphere because eventually they changed from WWF to WWE to what we know today. And that's kind of an overview of the 1990s WWF. So much happened, so many ups and downs from Hogan and Warrior to the steroid scandal, Brett and Sean, uh, then on to the Attitude Era with Austin and The Rock. Just it was a dramatic um, swing back and forth, up and down for WWF, a fun um, era to watch. It was the one decade where I watched every show from January 90 to January to uh, December 99. I watched everything. Didn't miss a week. Um, and one of the guys who was on camera during all that, during really 94 to 97-ish, was Duke the Dumpster Drossy. His real name is Mike Drossy. So in the mid-90s, Vince McMahon was doing a lot of hokey um, gimmicks that were based on uh, what guys would do for a job. They had IRS, a tax man, they had a plumber, and they decided to go with this guy being a trash man. He was a working class guy, blue collar guy, and he'd bring a garbage can to the ring, big guy, and he'd feud with guys like Jerry the King Lawler, a snobbish king, and an aristocrat named Hunter Hearst Helmsley, Triple H, eventually. 
and he had some feuds because he was just, he was kind of a lower mid-card guy, but in a lot of the, he was on a lot of pay-per-views, in the Rumble, at Survivor Series, in a feud with Triple H, in a feud with Lawler, he's going to talk about all of that, driving down the road with Bret Hart, becoming friends with Steve Austin and The Undertaker. Just some good stuff here. So I wanted to start, set it up with this look at WWF in the 90s, and now here the backstage stuff here with Mike Drosy. You may have known him better as Duke the Dumpster Drosy. Here it is. Well, we are joined now by Mike Drosy, or you may know him better as Duke the Dumpster Drosy from back in the day. Mike, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate you having me on, actually. I've been watching your stuff, and I'm a big fan. So, uh, yeah, it's really an honor to be here. Well, we appreciate it. We appreciate it. Um, talk to me a little about... Um, what you're doing now? Well, I, th I think I've seen you're doing kind of a show of your own right now. Yeah, I just kind of goof around. It's nothing big. I, I do actually a couple of things. My my shoot job, so to speak, during the day and during the week, I work for a an adult recovery court and okay. a behavioral, behavioral health court. It's people that have substance abuse problems and, and they're in the court system facing jail or prison time or mental health issues and the same, and they're in the jail or prison system are facing that and we are an alternative. It's just extremely strict supervision as well as treatment for whatever issues they're having. Um, so that's what I do during the day. And one of my podcasts is um, called The Recovery Podcast. It's on Fridays at seven, I think it's eight o'clock Eastern time. But, uh, and we just talk about recovery, man, and, and try to help people that are struggling out there. And then Saturday, I kind of goof around. I do, it's called, right now it's called Trash Cam Live. I'm thinking of going back to an old, an old title, uh, Talking Trash with Duke the Dumpster or something like that. But it is just, we just talk smack. We talk about wrestling. We talk about UFC stuff. We talk about current events and we just, whatever comes to mind. And it's on Saturdays at 7 p.m. Eastern time. And, and right now, these are both on, I, I go through StreamYard, so they're on Facebook, and they're on YouTube, and they're on Twitch. But my understanding is, I heard somewhere that maybe Twitch is allowing some simulcasting to, like, TikTok, and if that's the case, I'm probably going to leave Facebook and just move on over to TikTok, because there's a much, I think, better audience potential there, so. Yeah, I, I'm still figuring it out myself, but oh, you bring up Dumpster and the Trash Man. Let's get to what the people want to hear about. Sure. How did this all start? I mean, this is the new, I think it was the new generation is kind of when you were brought in early to mid-90s, and they're doing a lot of, um, you know, characters based on occupations at this point. You have your irs you have the mountie the big boss man and then they bring you in as a garbage man how did that come about i actually brought it with me i was down wrestling down in florida on the the i would call it the independent scene it wasn't much back in those days but you know i kind of thought about it for a long time before i took a shot at going up there and realized because of what you just said i needed some kind of type of character and I thought about things that Vince might like. And, um, you know, I knew he always loved having that blue collar guy that the fans, you know, the hardworking fans could get behind. And it just kind of came about it. And, and it seemed like this garbage man character was the perfect thing. So I started wrestling down in Florida as the garbage man, Rocco Gibraltar. And 
put together a lot of tape and that's basically how I got my look from the WWE is I, I actually handed a promo package to Vince himself at a NatP convention. And, um, and then he looked at it, him. And I think Shane also watched it. He told me later and they had JJ would have been a kid back then. Wouldn't he? He was just start. He was like 23. I want to say, and he was, it's interesting because when I did come in, he produced my vignettes. He was, what it seemed to me is he was going around and doing some time in each of the different parts of the company. And then when I got there, I just happened to be lucky enough that he was producing vignettes at the studio. So me and Shane drove around Stanford, Connecticut, cutting all those vignettes I did when I first came in. But he, um, but yeah, he was young and, and, and it seemed like he was really kind of bearing down to try and learn the company at that time. So, but what yeah, that's was he like about- back then? I mean, we knew Shane probably five years later when he really became an on-camera guy. But when he's 23-year-old kid, I mean, what was he like? And you were probably about this not too much older, I'm assuming. No, I was I was 25 when I went in. And he um he was a cool dude, man. He was real cool. He was um, you know, he he you know what's funny? I didn't even know he was Vince's kid when I met him at TV when right. I went to my tryouts. He walked up and he says, Hey man, who did your tape? It was me and my brother did my tape with two VCRs and VHS tapes. But as that's I, how like, you did it back then, yeah. Yeah, and I said me and my brother did, it, and he was really impressed, and he was talking to me or whatever. And then, but every time he would talk about his dad, he would call him Vince. He didn't call him Dad or my dad. He called him Vince. So at first, I was like. Uh, this must be just like one of the TV guys or something. So, I mean, I'm being nice to everybody because you got to be nice to everybody. But, um, you know, he was a cool dude. But then when I got to the studio and met up with him, I realized, holy crap, this is Vince's son. <laughs> well, it's probably a good contact to make. So you got you start, who are some of your first feuds? I mean, how does it start? Are you doing kind of the enhancement talent jobbers at that point? Or did you start a feud pretty quickly? Uh, they threw me right into a feud, actually, with Jerry the King Lawler. Um, you know, most of TV appearances back in those days, though, were, were working with enhancement talent just to kind of keep you moving and keep you on TV and keep you visible. And in my case, pumped me up in the beginning because they wanted everybody to get to know who I was and, and all that stuff and get me over on TV. But Jerry Lawler was the first thing I had, and um, it was that issue where he uh, – when I first came out for like my first match on Superstars versus Mike Bell, he was standing there like he was going to interview me. Jerry the King Lawler was going to interview me, and he made a joke out of it and put a clothespin on his nose like I stunk. So I dumped garbage all over his head, and that's how it started. And then it progressed, and the next time we did TV, we had a live Monday Night Raw. They weren't all live then, but this one was. And he had a King's Court. And I went out as a guest on his King's Court. He wouldn't let me in the ring. He talked a bunch of smack about me. He talked a bunch of smack about Bret Hart and his family. He was always pushing that angle. And then I just decided I wasn't going to stand there and listen to it anymore. And I left. So he came running out of the ring and jumped me. Uh, And he hit me with my own garbage can, which was an interesting thing because he actually suggested that in the back he well, what me. was jerry like to work with because jerry has been involved in so like some of the biggest you know angles ever biggest feuds ever what was he like to work with going in you're relatively novice at this point and he's jerry lawler 
Yeah, I mean, everybody will tell you, working with Jerry the King Lawler is like a night off. Because, uh, number one, he's great. And he's got great heat without doing anything. You know, you don't have to run a bunch of spots and stuff. And, and he takes most of the bumps. You know, any bumps I was taking, it was like he was doing the... He was doing the fake brass knuckles gimmick out of his tights and he would hit me and I'd, you know, I'd hit the ground and fall around, but it wasn't, I didn't have to take any huge bumps, but boy, he took a lot of big bumps for me because I was basically throwing everybody all over the place back in those days. So, but he was really easy to work with and, uh, and he was really nice uh, to me. So I had fun working with him. How big were you? You were a big guy. I mean, you still are, I'm assuming, but I'm seeing you on a screen now as opposed to when I used to watch you in the ring. You were like six, 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 seven. Is that right? Yeah, I was my my legitimate uh, height was six foot six. And my legitimate weight when I went in there was uh, I think I was 305 or 310 pounds. And it was funny because they asked me, they like, what are your what are your stats or whatever? And uh, I didn't realize you're supposed to give work stats. Like if you want to be seen bigger than you are or whatever, I didn't do any of that. I just said six, six, 305 pounds. And that stuck for the rest of my time there at the WWF. I was six foot six, 305 pounds. And it was kind of a big guy's territory at that point. You had a lot of very large men in WWF at that point. Yeah, there was a lot of big dudes and a lot of them could work and a lot of them could move. Um, it was definitely different from anywhere I'd been before that. You realize real fast that that is the big leagues. Um, when you're up there, you're with, you know, a lot of people that are the best at what they do. And what do you mean by that? Like when you say you can tell the difference between that and the in indies, like what specifically would you say was different? Well, uh the confidence of guys up at that level in the WWF, the confidence, especially, especially with regards to live television, man, those guys, I mean, yeah, certainly you would have, everybody has a little bit of nerves or something going on, but there's just something different about the guys up there, man. As soon as they walk through that curtain, it's on and they were on all of them, just about all of them. If you were, if you didn't have what it took, you wouldn't last long if you couldn't handle that. And um, yeah, I learned real fast. It was like a crash course and you better, get it together and, and, you know, know what you're doing or you're not going to last. But those guys were all really, they were the best of the best, I have to say. If I remember right, one of your early feuds, one of your main feuds is Triple H, is that right? Yeah, that's the only other feud I really had. Um, and he, and that, I mean, that was perfect for you because he was the snobby aristocrat, you're the garbage man. I mean, talk to me about working with Triple H back then, really, Hunter Hearst Helmsley. Uh, Triple H was great to work with. I mean, he always he was always willing to try or do anything. And he's definitely, like I said, I was throwing people all over the place. He flew all over the place. I, he didn't complain at all. And, uh, you know, sometimes I slammed him around quite a bit. But um, very intelligent in the ring, um, fun to work with. It's interesting that that feud came about at a time where I had, you know, my kind of, my traction had kind of, slowed a bit and we were discussing in meetings backstage at times about turning me to heel into a heel character which you know i would have loved to have done um but they never fully like pulled the pull i mean they never fully uh went with it and uh they just never turned me fully heel i mean i had a couple instances where i worked as a heel but it was interesting because it was right during that feud at the beginning and I told Vince and I was in a meeting with Vince and, and JR who was kind of moving into talent relations at that time and a few other people that 
I wanted to change my appearance. I wanted to cut my hair shorter and uh, do a heel kind of gimmick and persona. And JR was the one, the first one that said, he said, well, why don't we make your hair part of the angle then and uh, have Triple H do something where he gets pissed off and he comes out and cuts your hair, knocks you out somehow, cuts your hair, and that builds the feud. And I just remember sitting in that room looking around at everybody like, Mm, this is this is like uh, a major kind of decision because you know and i just remember looking at vince i said i don't have a problem doing that i would be more than happy uh, to to let him cut my hair and as long as we move forward in the other direction with me and i turn heel and somehow maybe at the end of this feud i get some kind of revenge on him because i mean honestly i knew i wasn't i wasn't going to beat him because he was already kind of in the click and yeah, where where was he at that point? I'm going on memory. He he was still relatively new, but you think, but he was really in the click with Sean and and Diesel and everyone at this point. Yeah, he jumped in there pretty quick. I remember how. Matter of fact, I remember how it happened because he had come in and he was doing his first TV matches, and um, he was like, I think he was riding. I don't remember who he rode with. Maybe um, Daryl Peterson when he was Man Mountain Rock, or maybe he rode with a couple other guys or something, but. I remember specifically at a TV, me and Scott Hall were sitting watching the monitor in the back while he was wrestling. And I just remember Scott talking about how impressed he was with the guy and that he, in his words, he was going to make him his project, which basically meant he was going to be jumping in with their gang, you know, the click. And, um, and that's what happened. And that's what he did. And he was smart. He jumped right in. And, uh, you know, in that respect, in terms of business, you know, those guys had a lot of power. So it was a smart move. Um, but yeah, I remember Scott Hall talking about it before, right before he started like riding with those guys and became involved with the click. So during, I want to just pick your brain on this subject for a bit. So during that era, I mean, we hear about the different kind of groups. We had the click undertaker kind of had his group. I don't even remember their names, but with BSK. like, uh, yeah, BSK with like Godfather. And I think Yoko was in there to a point. Then the hearts were kind of their own thing. Was it kind of like a, a clickish type thing at that time in WWF or is that just more of what kind of fans perceive it as? I think that's what fans perceive it as. Um, uh, the actual click had a lot of power and a lot of guys resented them. Um, I even did at some point, uh, many, many years later, I realized I was freaking stupid, but, um, it was any other if you weren't in the cl click you were pretty much an honorary member of any other group i mean i was riding with bret hart for a while so maybe i was kind of part of the heart you know click and um i would hang out with the undertaker and all those guys uh, oftentimes i've often said that at one point anybody who wasn't in the click was an honorary member of bsk but uh, even, as a matter of fact, at one point we were on a trip in Europe, I think it was, and Owen Hart brought, he had made um, a bunch of like ski caps with BSK and our names on the front and, uh, and, and passed them out to like all, all the guys. So a bunch of people had them, but. Um, was but there, the a, and we talk a lot about the click, for people not in the click, was there a motivation to kind of glom onto the undertaker kind of be part of bsk because undertaker on his own was just like this major force in the company at that point well i mean they couldn't mess with the undertaker but um you know those guys were just a group of friends you know undertaker didn't necessarily 
work any magic, getting anybody favors that was in BSK at that time. You know, it was still up to you to get your, and this was the thing I realized later is you got to get yourself over somehow. And if you're not happy with the way things are, and that's what I saw, but the, the, the click was a little bit different now. Shawn Shawn Michaels made it known that when he became champion, he was going to work with all of his friends in the click in different programs. So that's different. You know, that's pulling your guys along with you into to main event status or main event uh, positions. So that was different. But all the BSK guys, they were all over the place and in the card and stuff like that. But yeah, they just had a good time. And and as far as Sean goes, I mean, now looking back, we all know about his demons back then. Was it known back then or was he just kind of Vince's golden boy? Both. He was, he was, uh, I, I, I had gone to a few bars with Sean on occasion and kind of got us out of there because he would get too messed up and almost cause fights. But um, it was also, I think it wasn't a big enough problem to where it was affecting his standing with Vince. Vince really liked him and respected him. And obviously Vince and everybody else, even back then knew he, you know, he was one of the great workers of, all time he's he, he is and was you know one of the greatest wrestlers of all time without a, any doubt so to that extent and i think vince respected his attitude sometimes he was just he had a killer instinct and he was you know, you know he went after what he wanted and i think vince respected that too and i'm trying to remember your timeline when did you wrap up with wwf what year was that it was uh, 1996 probably almost halfway through i think so this would have been shortly after uh kevin nash and scott hall jump ship yes yeah they what was the mo- what was the mood among the boys when kevin and scott go to wcw and nwo starts uh, well you know it's interesting a lot a lot of guys would think think that they kind of jumped ship and they were traitors or all that stuff but Anybody that knows anything about the wrestling business also understands that you've got to do what's best for you and your family. And those guys made a move based on, you know, what they could get in the market as far as what WCW is willing to pay. And you can't fault them for that. Um, But yeah, in some ways, some guys kind of felt like they, you know, they had gotten these huge pushes and they were main event status and they were part of the clique and they could do no wrong. And then they just up and left. It was like, You know, some people really took it personally, but um, yeah. And you were also there, I think, probably when Brett and Sean are kind of starting their feud or, or were you leaving as that, that was kind of heating up? I was there up until they wrestled at WrestleMania 12 and, and, and Brett left for a while after that. And that's shortly thereafter is when I left. Um, but because I was riding with Brett before that, so I was hearing all about you know, things that were going on and between him and Sean and, and, you know, the discussions about the angle. So he would verbally make it known to you. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. He seemed to, I I mean, back in those days, he really didn't seem to like Sean. Then I, he respected him as a, as a wrestler and stuff. And he knew he could have a great match with Sean, which they did obviously, but I mean, many times, but um, yeah, I don't think, he just he felt the same way as some of the other guys he just didn't uh kind of fully respect him as a person at that time so yeah i would hear that so back to your 
push to make you heal the haircut angle that doesn't doesn't happen or how did that end well we did the deal on superstars well we started with i wrestled him on the first free-for-all and uh before pay-per-view i want to say it was yeah for our viewers i think that was kind of like the the pre-game show before the pay-per-views that that's how WWF did it for a while back then. I remember those. Yeah, it was like a, you could watch it free on the preview channel, and then it went to the paid pay for pay per view after that. But this match was to determine who would go out in the Royal Rumble, number one and number thirty. If you won the match, you would be number thirty, which is the preferable position going out in the Rumble. And so I wrestled Triple H, and we did this deal, and we wrestled a match, and it was a great match, and. Um, he at the end he pulled out brass knuckles. I don't know what it is with people in brass knuckles and me, but he pulls out brass knuckles, hits me, knocks me out, pins me. But then at that time, Gorilla Monsoon was the acting president. I think. What is it? I think. I think he was commissioner, maybe. Commissioner, maybe. Commissioner and sounds I, right. He came out and reversed the decision, so I actually beat Triple H by disqualification. And that's so got to be a feather in your cap these decades later. People keep saying you're the first person to ever beat Triple H. I'm like, yeah, it was a, it was, it was a disqualification. Yeah. I never pinned anybody, but you know, it was what it was, and it was a cool angle the way it was, you know, being set up. And then right after that pay per view, uh, we went back to TV, and he came running out and jumped me in the middle of one of my matches, and knocked me out and pedigreed pedigreed me face down on my own trash can lid there's another thing people keep beating me up with my own trash can but um and then he cut my hair off and uh so it was kind of in the middle of that angle so we had this hot angle we were you know getting ready to move towards uh the royal rumble with and we just kept pushing it kept doing house shows kept getting ready and and uh, uh we did the we did the the rumble and then we did we kept this angle going and we wrestled each other at the first, well, I don't know if it was the first, but it was in your house. It was in 1996, but it was an in your house match. And um, again, he cheated. He hit me in the face with the garbage can lid to pin me in the end. And that was kind of the end of it. And that's when I was really kind of frustrated with how things were kind of coming about. They weren't really doing what they said they were going to do. And they didn't even, kind of set me up in any kind of angles as a heel, you know, so I just, that's when I really started getting uh, just uh, not happy with the way things were, and uh, when you get like that, it can eat at you, and you, you become very erratic and, and say stupid stuff and do stupid things, so that's what happened. So, and then, so any other big matches you remember? I mean, maybe not necessarily long-term feuds, long-form feuds, but matches that come to mind you know i always enjoyed wrestling um when i first got there savio vega was quang and uh, he was finishing up his quang and getting ready to switch his gimmicks but i wrestled him quite a bit as quang and we had, always had a blast and we always had great matches i always had a great lot of the guys that i've heard i've heard about savio over the years a lot of the guys really said he was one of the better workers to work with is that right oh yeah he's great he's great in the ring yeah, and he's he's a great worker. He's also very willing to do things and try things. So he was definitely fun to work with. And he 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 didn't take himself too seriously either, man. We would have fun out there and actually laugh in the ring and goof around sometimes too. Um, and another guy was uh, 
Pierre, Jean-Pierre Lafitte or Quebecer Pierre at the time. Uh, I wrestled him quite a bit too in the beginning. So those two guys I wrestled a lot. Yeah. Had Austin or The Rock shown up when you were still there or did they come after you? Because I know Austin was kind of 96 at some point. Yeah, I think he was the end of, maybe the end of 95 even. Uh, the funny thing is, is, and I actually rode with Austin a lot before before I left. We were riding together. But the what was Steve like back then? Because he was, you know, a different different animal than what he turned into two or three years later. Well, I mean, you could tell he was going to be great, but he was very humble. He was very, you know, he, he just, he, he was on the, the slow build, building himself up, having the best matches he could have and trying to, you know, improve his position in the company. Funny story, I don't know if you've heard this, but his very first TV match he came in was supposed to be me and how it came about. And it was just kind of a last second thing. I wasn't even supposed to be on TV at that point. They weren't even using me that much. And uh, I was really frustrated and it was, he came in and I hadn't even met him yet. And I, they said, you're going to wrestle uh, the, the ringmaster. And I, and I just remember my initial two-year contract was about up and I was just frustrated. So and, and Brett kind of gave me some advice. He said, just refuse to do it. And I was like, that's an option. <laughs> so I went and talked to Bruce Pritchard and I just told him, I just told him how I felt about the whole situation. I felt like they were doing me wrong. And he like, it seemed like he panicked. He was like, oh, just hold on, hold on. Let me talk to Vince, you know, like, like they didn't want to lose me or something. Well, the reality is they just wanted me to resign for another year, but I didn't wrestle Steve. So I'm probably the only person who ever refused to do a job for the eventual Stone Cold Steve Austin. We still joke about that, but he, he still laughs at me. Was that a missed opportunity? Um, we became really good friends afterwards, though. The interesting thing is when I was sitting there and he came up, he goes, I guess we're working together. And I went, well, no, we're not. And I'm going to tell you why. And I told him the whole thing about what was going on and how they were using me and and uh, he said, dude, I totally understand, especially the, the way what he had just come back from after WCW and the way they treated him. And he's like, I totally understand. And we became really good friends after that. Uh, so but yeah, I mean, I I could have probably had some great matches with him. Um, you know, we wrestled a few times here and there, but not many times. I think the only time I remember seeing you after your WWF run and correct me if I'm wrong, was the gimmick battle royal a few years later. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I came back in for the gimmick battle royal. I actually called them. Somebody told me about it. I was working with some people, actually with the same independent people I was working with before that down in Florida again. And uh, somebody told me they were having this gimmick battle royal. So I called Bruce and I, I got booked on it. And uh, I went, yeah, I mean, I was in no shape or condition really to wrestle. But thankfully, I didn't have to. I just had to walk around punching and kicking everybody until I got you know, clothesline out of the ring backwards by Doink the Clown, and that was it. So, but it was probably, arguably, the greatest WrestleMania ever to be on, and it was, uh, you know, it was a nice little payday too. So, I'm sure. What are paydays like on like a Mania versus like comparing? Do they bring you in for a one-off on like Raw or something? Are Mania paydays usually better? Well, look, when I was there, the paydays were horrible on everything. Uh, for the, uh, the money was just low for a, because remember Vince was in the middle of the steroid scandal and the court, the federal court case, and all that stuff was going on when I first came in. 
And so paydays were really kind of low, especially for me and and a lot of other guys that were opening to mid-card guys at that time. Um, the pay-per-views always paid more. Um, but that WrestleMania, I mean, even it ended up, I got, I think I got two, two checks out of it. I got one initially, and then I got another one later on. But, uh, the, before that, my biggest paycheck was, I got paid $6,000 for that match with Triple H on In Your House. Cause we were like semi-main event, I think. But then, um, in that WrestleMania, I made more than that. Just going out there, walking around with a bunch of other old gimmicks and punching and kicking and yelling and screaming. And everybody was goofing off, but well, yeah, do you think was, that was because WWE, WWF at that point was really at its peak that they'd ever been? I mean, I think that was that Austin Rock, or was that I'm trying to remember what the main event Austin, was. On that Austin main Rock, event. yeah, at yeah. the Houston Astrodome, seventeen. Yeah, it was huge. And I'll tell you, that card was stacked, man. Let me tell you, I, I standing there watching all those matches and being there in person, um, uh, Benoit versus Angle was an amazing match. And of course the TLC match, which went on, went on right before us in the gimmick battle Royal. So we were all standing in gorilla position watching that match, that TLC um, between the Hardys and Edge and Christian and the Dudleys. It was amazing. It was insane. So that, that WrestleMania card was stacked from top to bottom. Any wrestlers you still keep in contact with? I, I still occasionally talk to Steve Austin. Um, I still talk sometimes to Savio and see him out and about. Now, a lot of times I see the guys, some of the guys at these, the autograph conventions and the comic cons and stuff. The Godfather, we still communicate and talk sometimes. Um, Barry Horowitz, I just saw him not too long ago, you know. Uh, it's always it's always fun to see those guys and kind of reminisce sometimes and talk about stuff we did in our crazier days. But uh, yeah, there's a few guys I still talk to. Well, Mike Drosy, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the show today. I really appreciate it. Scott, I really appreciate you having me on the show, man. Like I said, it's been an honor and, uh, you know, I can't wait to watch it. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. So I want to thank Mike Duke the Dumpster Grossi for coming on the show with us, giving us all that good stuff, like knowing what it was like for Bret Hart when he's driving down the roads and in that feud with Sean, and they didn't like each other. Uh, kind of knowing what Austin was like as he was learning he was becoming the guy. Um, and, 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 you know, knowing what it was like dealing with Vince and Triple H during those times. Just an interesting perspective. I want to thank him for coming on. It was some good stuff. And he's got, if you look Duke Drosy podcast, he's got a lot of podcasts he's done over the years. If you want to go check out any of his content, he, uh, Mike has put out there over the years. He's just got a lot of good stuff. So I want to thank him for coming on. And it's my favorite decade for WWF, WWE of all time because so much happened, the Monday Night Wars happened, uh, the rise of Austin, the, the end of Ulkamania, um, and the Brett and Sean stuff, the rise of The Undertaker. Um, just so much happened in the 90s. It was my favorite decade. It was just a great decade, and, and Mike was there throughout all of it. So I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, a fun show, and we hope to see you back here next time on Going Ringside. This has been Going Ringside with The Local Station, brought to you every Wednesday on your favorite podcast player, on News 4 Jax Plus, as well as the News 4 Jax YouTube channel.